Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, remembering the iconic glass bank in Cocoa Beach. It was a beautiful structure. I mean, you know, from an architectural standpoint, I mean, it could have been just as at home in Los Angeles or in Palm Springs as it was here in Cocoa Beach. We'll discuss the father of modern bioanthropology, Alish Hardlishka, and his time in Florida. He tried to put together a kind of a holistic, all-encompassing view of what indigenous life in Florida specifically looked like. And we'll talk about pioneer stock car racer, Louise Smith. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The building known as the Glass Bank opened in 1962 and quickly became an iconic structure in Cocoa Beach. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at the Glass Bank. Officially known as the first federal savings and loan, the Glass Bank was an iconic five-story building in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Located near Patrick Air Force Base and NASA's John F. Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, for nearly a decade, it was a hotspot for locals and tourists. The building fell into disrepair in the 1970s and was demolished in 2015. Historian Dr. Lori Walters is a research assistant professor at the Institute for Simulation and Training at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She is also a noted space historian. She talked to me about the rise and fall of the glass bank in Cocoa Beach. So the glass bank is just a wonderful representation of space-age architecture. The architect uh, was a member of the Sarasota School of Architecture, which was, of course, a favorite group of, of mid-century architects here in Florida, um, by the name of uh, Reginald Knight. While it's called the glass bank, it's actually the first federal savings and loan association of cocoa, the Cocoa Beach branch. And so Cocoa Beach is, is starting to grow in the early 1960s because we've got that second wave of growth going on thanks to the uh, establishment of NASA and then the third wave because of the uh, Apollo program. As Dr. Walters explains, Cocoa Beach grew exponentially as more people moved to the area for job opportunities with the U.S. space program. It's clear that Cocoa Beach is, is going to grow. And so um, the uh, First Federal Savings and Loan, they decided they want to have a um, a better facility in Cocoa Beach because right you know at that moment in time they had a very small branch that was in downtown Cocoa Beach and so the president of the savings and loan was a very forward-thinking individual who wanted something that really stood out that that spoke about what the community was and that said much about them as well 
Cocoa Beach at this time is just a little over 3,000 people. And so this building um, cost uh, roughly $750,000. And then you multiply that by probably now about 7, 7.5 to get about what its value would be today if it were constructed. That's an awful lot of money for a community of that size. It really says that they think that, that the future of Cocoa Beach is going to be boundless. They spared no expense in this building. And it was a beautiful structure. I mean, you know, from an architectural standpoint, I mean, it could have been just as at home in Los Angeles or in Palm Springs as it was here in Cocoa Beach. It really um, was a wonderful representation of mid-century architecture. The interior of the glass bank was modern and elegant. In its glory years, politicians, astronauts, space workers, and celebrities visited the glass bank. Dr. Walters. The interior of the building as well is, is really quite fascinating. You know, the reason why it got the nickname the glass bank is because really it, it looks like and you got to remember what it looked like when it was originally constructed. And so when it originally was um, constructed, it had uh, a lot of glass. And inside they had uh, like an atrium and they had a mezzanine level. And the bank was on the bottom and a couple independent offices were on the bottom as well. The mezzanine level was really um, just for viewing and uh, the public could hold events up there. And, and they had like their coffee break room and everything up there for the bank. And then they had uh, another floor that was for offices. And then the top was a restaurant, Ramon's Rainbow Room. And Ramon's was a very popular restaurant that was known for its prime rib and its Caesar salad dressing. Because of its space-age architecture and swanky atmosphere, the glass bank soon became a symbol of Cocoa Beach. It was a beautiful building. I mean, it's striking, and, and it looked so space-agey. And, and it's an original configuration. It had a skywalk on the outside that you could watch the missiles. So it really incorporated what the community was. You could stand up there and look at the ocean, or you could stand and, and watch the missiles fly. And the restaurant was, again, it was a high-end restaurant. You know, Walter Cronkite would eat there. And, and they had um, what was very you know, typical of the era. They had fashion shows. And so you, you would see that in some of the better restaurants, obviously in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Miami, um, where people would be having lunch, business lunches and everything, and the young ladies would be dressed in this very expensive attire. And, you know, it was very much in tune with the times, and it was just wonderful. While the building was visually impressive, it also had its flaws. You know, it had so much glass that it, that it leaked like a sieve. Um, the echo would be, you know, you'd, you'd be on the, on the mezzanine level, and you could hear everything that was going on the bottom level and vice versa. And, and it was just like an echo chamber in there. And one side of the building was always hot and one side of the building was always cold because, you know, they had to crank the air conditioning up so high because the one side of the sun coming in. By the late 1960s, times were changing and the glass bank began to lose popularity. Two modifications had occurred. One in 1964, they pushed out the, the walls of the restaurant that was on top of it uh, to make more floor space. And then in 1980, um, the facade had changed where they had more of that stucco added to it. It still had a kind of space-age feel to it, and, you know, because of the slopes and everything. Much of the glass was taken away, you know, because of the uh, leakage problems that they had. Some of the areas that presented the most problem, the, the glass was no longer there, and so what they did is they put like a stucco finish over it. And then, of course, um, the, uh, the penthouse was, was placed atop it as well, which, of course, proportionally changed the building because if you look at the original configuration of it, you know, having this big block on top of it, you know, 
I'm sure Reginald Knight never envisioned anything like that ever occurring. But, uh, you know, it, it had changed a lot, too. And so, you know, it had so much damage in it that um, it would have been very difficult to return it to what it once was. The historic hurricane season of 2004 damaged the glass bank beyond repair. It was eventually demolished in 2015. Gone but not forgotten, locals still remember the glass bank. They even continue to use it as an identifying landmark. During the uh, 50th anniversary for Apollo 11, they had a parade in Cocoa Beach. And uh, the flyers, they had said where the parade was going to start and end and such. And by the summer of uh, 2019, you know, the glass bank had been demolished. You know, it was, it was down in, in January of 2015. So it's been gone for a number of years now. And so that speaks volumes as to what that, that building meant to the community, that it could still be used. It's been gone for years, but yet it's being used as a, as a point of reference for something as important as a parade for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. The rise and fall of the glass bank paralleled the space race. Even though the glass bank no longer exists, Dr. Lori Walters and her students and colleagues were able to digitally preserve the building through 3D laser printing. Just before its demolition in 2015, Dr. Walters and her team conducted a laser scan of the glass bank's exterior and created a 3D model of the structure as it appeared in 1963. Terrestrial laser scanning is, is specifically what we do. The laser goes around, and as it goes out, it hits anything that's in its path. And because we know what the speed of light is, as a result of that, we can determine when it hits something and bounces back how far the distance is. So as this laser is going around, it's, it's going around hundreds and thousands of times as it's going in a 360-degree turn. And so as it's doing this, it's recording all of these points. Every time it hits something, it records a point in space. And so it records an X, Y, and Z point in space. And so it does a 360 degree pass. After it does, does that, it then goes around and it takes a photograph of the exact same location. So that what it does with that second pass is that that photograph is actually capturing the color. And so that gives me a point cloud representation of a 3D space. And it is a highly accurate, depending upon the distance and the setting that you put the, the equipment on, it can be up to one millimeter accuracy. And this is important for historic preservation. It's used in archaeology, it's used in crime scene investigation, it's used in engineering, and a whole host of other um, disciplines. The Glass Bank was a distinctive building that signaled a bright and innovative future for Cocoa Beach. Through the use of 3D laser printing, Dr. Walters and her team have captured and preserved the essence of the Glass Bank. Because of their efforts, future generations can see the glass bank as it was during the height of the space race, when it was the hippest spot in Cocoa Beach. Dr. Lori Walters. Why I'm interested in it, it enables me to capture a moment in time. And what one can do with that is, in the event of a fire, in the, as we saw with Notre Dame, um, in the, a natural disaster of an earthquake, um, in the case of sometimes in, in war-torn areas, um, simply weather deterioration, a demolition or a modification, I can I have that that point in time, that capture in time, that I can then go from point A to point B, and I can do up to one millimeter accuracy dimensions. So from that standpoint, it is a wonderful historic preservation tool, digitally preserving. And so you know, basically, you know, that's what a laser scanner is. Is I like to look at it as as something that is. Um, capturing a moment in time, digitally, you know, capturing a visual representation of a moment in time. In order to tell the story of the glass bank during its golden era, 
Dr. Walters and her team also collected images, documents, and oral histories from the Cocoa Beach community. I don't just call it that we do a, a laser scan of a structure and then we walk away from the structure. Most of the structures, I try to do a life history of a building. And I look at it as we do the, the, the digital capture with the laser scanner. And then we try to contextualize the building within the era through um, historic images, memorabilia, ephemera, oral histories. So that now we not only look at a digital representation of the glass bank, we've captured that prior to its demolition, we've now gone out and we've sought out historical images, uh, we've sought out um, menus from Ramon's Rainbow Room, we've conducted oral histories with people about what it was like to work on the development of the building, work in the building, live near the building, just pass by the building. But they, they could be very brief oral histories, you know, just somebody that maybe banked there, you know, and those little, you know, uh, micro oral histories are, are just as important as, as the deep, you know, ones that we may have. For more information about the digital preservation projects of Dr. Lori Walters and her team, go to chronopoints.com. That's C-H-R-O-N-O-P-O-I-N-T-S.com. ChronoPoints is a lab at the University of Central Florida's Institute for Simulation and Training dedicated to digitally documenting historically significant structures and artifacts. There you can learn more about 3D laser scanning, you can virtually explore the glass bank, and you can look through an image gallery featuring photographs of the building. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. MyFloridaHistory.org is a great place to get all of your holiday shopping done. We have great books on Florida history and culture. You can get a gift subscription to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and you can even register for our exciting Caribbean conference cruise taking place May 16th through 23rd. Interesting discussions about Florida history will take place on board ship with special tours in San Juan, Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, and Grand Turk. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Easy go, connect them, dry bones, easy go, connect them. Dry bones, easy go, connect them. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, several noteworthy anthropologists came to Florida in the late 1800s and early 1900s as that branch of science was just developing. One of those was Alish Hardlishka. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Hardlishka actually immigrated to the United States sometime in the 1880s, early 1880s. He was of Czechoslovakian heritage, came here with his parents. He was educated at home. 
and actually started gravitating more towards medicine, traditional medicine. In fact, he became a doctor. He was a practicing doctor in the 1890s. And then through a series of meetings with scientists at the Smithsonian Institution, the Peabody Museum at Yale University, he started becoming very interested in the development of human origins with anthropology. So he started kind of moving into that science and ultimately really developed that science. So he started taking what he understood about anatomy, human anatomy, and and the medical sciences, and applied that methodology towards, as you said, what would become this modern science of anthropology at the turn of the century, you know, into the progressive era in the United States. And he spent the rest of his life in the U.S. He practiced and really developed and, and honed his skills, but traveled the world as well. He came up with a lot of theories today, some of which we accept, some uh, may not, but came up with a lot of the methodologies, at least, that bioarchaeologists are still employing in the field when encountering human remains, especially indigenous human remains. He spent time, of course, in the United States, but also in Asia, throughout Europe, and developed these kind of global theories about human migration that we still look at today and still study today. Now, Hardlishka's work in Florida was compiled into a book that was published in 1922, and you have a copy of it here in the archive. Yeah, that's right. We're looking at one of really only a handful of existing volumes. This this publication called The Anthropology of Florida, as you said, published in 1922, had a very limited publication. Probably less than 100 copies exist today. This is a very, very fine copy. It was probably only opened a handful of times in the last almost century or so. But it's a really detailed account of all of his field work in Florida. But he also went back to several museums. As I mentioned, the Natural History Museum in New York, the, the Peabody Museum, the Smithsonian Institution, and pulled together all of the archaeological remains that had already been dug in Florida in the late 19th century and started compiling precise measurements of not only artifacts, but primarily human remains. And he tried to put together a kind of a holistic, all-encompassing view of what indigenous life in Florida specifically looked like. And one of his major contributions that actually comes out of this volume is an estimate of the total populations prior to contact in southwest Florida. And he put that number somewhere between 25,000, 30,000 individuals, which a lot of archaeologists would even accept today as being probably close estimations. He first came to Florida in 1916, spent a couple of weeks here. He actually visited what was called the Vero site, where the state geologist at the time, a man named Elias Sellards, first discovered they were digging a canal and they discovered human remains. And Sellards believed that they were very, very old. He brought Hartlishka here, who thought, well, they're probably not that old. And that controversy went on for another century or so. In fact, they're still involved and some excavations and science in that region. He traveled to Southwest Florida, and that's where he spent most of his time. He came back in 1918 and actually spent an entire month in Florida. And most of that, the field notes are compiled into this this one volume. So along with his notes, we also have, as you'll see here, these really beautifully done maps. Hartlishka brought with him a camera, so he tried to photograph as much as he could. But as a lot of scientists experienced, especially in Florida at this time period, it was very, very difficult to do field work. He couldn't even find a field crew to do the digging. So he did very, very little actual excavation, but he recorded as much as he could. And and you can see that here in the maps, very, very detailed maps of where mounds are located in southwest Florida, and also some photographs. He photographed Seminole Indians and also some of the pioneers that were living along the southwest coast at that time period. Now, although we wouldn't agree with all of his conclusions today, Hardlishka's work is still considered to be important, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we would classify him as being kind of a product of his times. You know, at at this time period, the early 20th century, what we consider now the science of eugenics was very, very popular. It was really mainstream science 
in America at that time period. And he kind of allied himself with that movement. And of course, out of that came these conclusions, biological conclusions about racial divisions that would be solidified into law, into immigration policies, into Jim Crow era policies in different states, especially in the South. So those conclusions, of course, we dismiss today. However, in the back of this volume, you see it's just filled with all of these tables and charts and and very accurate measurements of the remains of, of indigenous peoples that he found in Florida. You know, that basis, that solid basis is rooted in the numbers, essentially, of science, the actual measurements. Archaeologists still use today because it's sort of a, a benchmark. So we know that, you know, a lot of, so much of these sites have been destroyed. Here was someone who came here before hyperdevelopment recorded at least a lot of these artifacts, and they can use that as kind of a statistical basis to then further more contemporary studies. Ben, you mentioned earlier the theories of prehistoric human migration that Harlishka developed. His is still the traditionally accepted view, right? Yeah, that's right. By the turn of the 20th century, he had begun compiling a lot of information from around the world. As I said, he traveled throughout Asia, Siberia, parts of Alaska, and he started theorizing about what we now refer to as the Bering Land Bridge migration theory. And that specifically talks about the movement of early humans from Asia across during the last ice age, about 16,000 years ago, across what was exposed land between Alaska and Siberia, the Bering Land Bridge what we call Beringia is the other name for it, into North America. And it was those populations that moved south towards what is present-day Canada, into the continental United States, and eventually to Florida. So he really was one of the first to compile a lot of data based on the anthropological remains, the skeletal remains of human beings, comparing it to, of course, this is pre-DNA, but comparing it to contemporary populations, and then began developing that theory. And that theory, of course, is still as you mentioned, still widely accepted today as probably the best reasoning, at least for how human beings began to come into North America. There are, of course, competing theories today. And the timeline was off. I mean, originally he had theorized that this occurred about 3,000 years ago. Archaeologists and anthropologists have now moved that back closer to 16,500 years ago, when human beings at least first came across that land bridge. And there were different waves of migration. And the theory really got much more complex over the course of the last century. But beginning in about 1898 through 1902, 1903, is when Hardlishka really developed and honed the beginnings, the base theory, at least, for what would become the Bering Land Bridge theory. That's a fascinating document. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the book that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Louise Smith was a pioneer in stock car racing in Daytona Beach. Zach Barnes, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this report. 
She was born in rural Georgia. She loved anything mechanical. She and her younger brother, they got a hold of her father's Model T. She knew how to start it and how to drive it, but she didn't know how to stop it, and she ended up driving it through the chicken house. She liked driving. She liked speed. She liked being daring and living living life on the edge, if you will. And then, uh, you know, owning a junkyard, she and her husband had uh, access to most any kind of part or car, and uh, she built herself a hot rod. And she used to go tearing up uh, the streets of Greenville, South Carolina, before her driving career. That was Buzz McKim, the official NASCAR historian, discussing the early days of stock car racing legend Louise Smith, known as the First Lady of Racing. Her racing career started in Greenville, South Carolina, during the early 1940s. She was discovered by NASCAR co-founder Bill France. Buzz McKim tells me more about the recruitment of Louise Smith. The very first race she ever ran was in Greenville. Bill France, who founded NASCAR, had been promoting the races at the Greenville Pickens Speedway. It was a half-mile dirt track. It's still there, one of the oldest continually run NASCAR tracks in the country. And he was looking for something a little unusual, something to kind of draw more people, maybe kind of a novelty. And so he asked the police, do you have any good lady drivers in the area? And they said, oh, golly, that Louise Smith, yeah, she's a terror on the street. So uh, Bill France convinced her that uh, she needed to become a race car driver. Since the beginning, auto racing has primarily been a male-dominated sport. Women were excluded from participating in the races, as well as assisting in the pits. Louise Smith was one of the first women to break down this barrier, but she and other female drivers were met with extreme prejudice on the track. The lady drivers of that day had to sit in the grandstands, and then before the race, the mechanics or the car owner would bring the car around to the starting line, and the drivers, the female drivers, would have to come out of the stands and drive the car, and then go back in the stands. Like many other race car drivers, Louise Smith had a dream to compete in Daytona, which was the main destination for serious stock car racers. In 1949, she entered her first NASCAR race, and promptly wrecked her husband Noah's brand new Ford Coupe. Louise Smith had a reputation for being an aggressive driver, which was usually reciprocated with equal aggression. Some men resented Louise's place on the track, while others embraced it. Buddy Schumann, who was one of the real, real stars of back of the day, he was one of the founders of NASCAR, a very good driver, and uh, the first technical inspector. He was really, really good at spinning other people out, and he had a very slick, almost a ballet move of getting onto your uh, left rear corner and just giving you a little tap. And he saw that Louise was really, you know, having a, a hard time out there with the guys giving her a lot of grief. So he taught her his signature move. And uh, she eventually earned the respect of everybody she raced against. Louise Smith raced from 1949 to 1956. In 1999, she became the first woman inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame with 38 wins. The reason she's in the Motorsports Hall of Fame, or International Motorsports Hall of Fame, is for her contribution to the expansion of the sport. You know, the sport is open to anybody, and she was one of the very first ones, one of the very first females, to, uh, to take advantage of that opportunity. And she had to put up with probably a lot of sexism and uh, abuse. And she wasn't the winningest driver, but she certainly had uh, the most heart of anybody from her era. And she was bound and determined to do it. She was not going to be dissuaded. And um, she was just a groundbreaker, really. And I think that that had a lot to do with her uh, getting inducted into that Hall of Fame. We would like to thank Buzz McKim for his time and expertise. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Zachary Barnes, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen to the program as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.